Hi, I'm James. And I'm Cairo. And we're bringing you Who Cares Wins, the podcast all about caring. Sharing some of the amazing stories and light-hearted aspects of the role, but not shying away from some of the more difficult aspects. And doing it with a smile on our face. And if you find those stories helpful, please do subscribe and rate them highly on your podcast provider because it makes a real difference to getting these stories to those people who are sometimes really struggling. Right, James, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Who Cares Wins. It has been honking it down with rain uh, in the UK at the moment. Uh, has it been similarly rainsome in Dubai? We did actually have some rain. Um, really? And the whole world went mental. It was crazy. All over the news, <laughs> we had about three to four minutes of what I would describe as very, very light rain. But it was it was newsworthy. So except for that, it has been beautifully sunshiny. Yeah, thank you. Well, you must have us all around uh, uh, very soon. Um Okay, so uh, you were talking to a guy called Gordon this week. Who is Gordon? What's he doing? Yeah, the lovely Gordon Southend. He's a comic. Um, I first came across Gordon uh, after seeing his show based up in Edinburgh, the Fringe Festival, about his dad and dealing with his dad's dementia. And it was, it was such a beautiful balance between being hilarious, which it needed to be as a, as a comedian, comedy show, um, <laughs> but also has some really touching moments. So we reached out and um, lucky enough, to, we came and sat down and uh, yeah, had a chat about it. Sweet. Let's roll the tape. If you don't mind by starting just saying your full name. Hello, my name is, middle name as well, Gordon <laughs> John Southern. Well, very formal, thank you. Um, and you are a carer? Not really. I mean, I have recently lost my father and so for the last few years, my mum has been the primary carer for him as uh, vascular dementia, mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, took hold of him. But my sister and I then became, I suppose, cheerleaders, a support network. So my experience of care is, is you know, one day a week because mm -hmm. I'm a professional stand-up comedian. That, so that takes up quite a bit of my time. Uh, but certainly not a carer, but maybe a supporter to a mm -hmm. carer. I mean, it's interesting, the... For me, I'd call that a carer still. Like right. you, you care for your mum. You care for her well-being. Well, this was the thing, is that Dad, towards the end, was kind of not sure who anyone was, maybe even oblivious to us. But Mum knew who we were, and Mum needed us to be there mm. as, as a respite from his uh, gobbledygook as well. Mm. <laughs> because he, right up until very close to the end, he could still speak, but he didn't really know what he was mm. saying, or he would select the incorrect words. So it was a bit of a weird... I, I wrote a whole show about it, and the best way to describe it is talking to my dad was like playing charades with someone who's drunk. <laughs> uh, something you'd only really want to do at Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like writing about something so personal? Well, unfortunately, you know, my solo shows are a machine with a great appetite for content, so everything that happens to me kind of gets thrown into that sausage machine. And I wanted to write something that was a, a tribute to my dad that celebrated who he was before the dementia took place because he was a very successful businessman. He had loads of amazing hobbies and, and, and things that he liked to do, a father, a husband. And dementia strips all of that away from a person. So I wanted to, one, celebrate his life, two, touch on what it was like you know, to watch him fade away, and three, find the humour in it because I believe good comedy shines a light into possibly very dark places. I think that's its function. 
You said find the humour. How? Well, um, rule number one, you don't punch down, but you just remember the fun times. And also there is a little section of the show where, where I basically have all his malapropisms and things that he meant to say, but he said something else. And some of them turned out to be very funny. One of the running jokes, and I'm very fond of this because it came from his mouth, is my sister seeing his fitness deteriorate says, have you thought about maybe Tai Chi? To which my dad replies, oh, you know me, I'll eat anything. <laughs> and then I get the, he gets the last laugh because we go to a Tai Chi restaurant. It does exist. <laughs> How long was your dad's deterioration? Well, uh, diagnosed, it was only three or four years. But when you look back over his behaviour, the signs were there from quite early on. And we just thought it was old age, maybe he'd had a few too many drinks, but then his behaviour was like that, whether he'd had a drink or not, and went, okay, maybe there's a problem here. And then, as with a lot of illnesses, there was the occasional landslide, and these were precipitated by TIAs, which are basically minor strokes, and they affected his speech, his cognitive processes, his movement a little bit. He could still get up and down the stairs until very near the end. Um, and then, of course, there was the, the final stroke, which um, incapacitated him fully, which was back in September of last year. Mm -hmm. And he was admitted right away to the brilliant Broomfield Hospital in Chelmsford. They gave him three days to live and he clung on for three months. Wow. So that was uh, that was gruelling because to start with, we were saying goodbye to him. What we thought was for the last time, several times a day. And then, of course, we go, actually, see you tomorrow, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and do you want to talk a little bit about the impact it had, I suppose, on the slightly wider family, like yourself? And well, dementia um, is, I call it a sniper, because it wounds one soldier, but that's to attract all the others to kill them. Mm. It doesn't tear a family apart. If anything, it brought us closer together as a family, because by necessity, we spent more time together. But it's really a strain because this person is not the person they were before and through no fault of their own, they're very unreasonable. It's difficult to get them to do anything. I, you know, I remember like trying to leave the house. You have to factor in maybe 10 to 15 minutes for shoes and socks because mm. you're there going, lift your foot up, lift your foot up. And he'd be looking at you like, I, I don't really know who you are. And I don't really, you know, the instruction couldn't reach his foot. It was a long way away. Um, I've forgotten the question now. <laughs> the, oh, how does it affect the family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what I'm learning now, because it's been over six months since he passed away, is that uh, the process isn't over. Because now that he's gone, my mother, who was by his side as, as a wife and as a business partner for 55 years, she now needs some help because the loneliness, the lack of confidence that she's experiencing... Um, she was never a fan of driving, but now it's like, oh, I'll do anything to avoid driving. She's going, no, Mum, you've got to get back behind the wheel. And there was a weird process after the funeral where a lot of people reached out, and you know, she's very blessed, I think, to have a network of family and friends who check in on her, either over the phone or by email or by physically dropping in. But she, she would shun them initially and, and have that... I guess the cripplingly low self-esteem of no longer having that primary function as a carer. And she go, oh, I don't, I don't want to bother people with my problems and I'll probably just talk about my husband. And, and you know, I don't want to trouble them, I don't want to bore them. And it takes a long time to 
extract her from her shell after that. Mm. So that was that was one of the main effects of the bereavement. Mm. So yeah, the care now slides across. Mm. And I suppose as a family, it's it's almost you're now caring in a slightly different way. You're talking about grief rather than this is a condition. Yeah, bereavement rather than uh, you know looking after someone with a a medical condition. Although I, as you noticed when I walked in, I'm on a crutch yeah. because uh, I had a hip replacement about seven weeks ago and I rehabilitated at my mum's. And I thought, well, this is great because this means she can have another go at being a carer. <laughs> Just isn't that simple. And, and, you know, I found myself almost reverting back to the last time I lived at home. So I was going, oh, my God, I'm like an 18-year-old boy yeah. and I'm surly and I want to go. It's like, oh, stop suffocating me. Did she, still, did she still, still do your washing? She did my washing <laughs> and uh, cooked me meals. And, you know, for the first three or four weeks, I was pretty useless. Whacked out on painkillers, sleeping a lot. So, yeah, like a teenager. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's amazing, I think, almost what you're kind of talking about slightly is, is purpose and, and your mum's life. Yes, uh, we, di- we didn't realise. I mean, my father was a very big character and big shoes to fill. And when those shoes are vacated, you're like, oh, we really have to re-examine what our relationship is as a family. So that, that is a challenge, absolutely. What aspects of the dementia were, the, I suppose, the hardest to deal with? Um, it is heartbreaking. Because like, he'd lose people gradually. To start off with, friends and acquaintances, acquaintances, he would blank. And then gradually, as the condition got worse, closer friends would be forgotten. And then finally, family members. And I think the most heartbreaking thing is when he didn't recognise his wife anymore. Because she was there for him you know, 24-7 for pretty much all of her adult life. So to see that was, was the most heartbreaking thing. And, and it's hard not to take it personally mm. when, because I like, you know, I, I'd be in Australia for quite a, a big chunk of the year doing my tours. So when I come back from Australia, my dad doesn't recognise me. I go, fair enough. I've, I've not been around for four months. But when he doesn't recognise the woman who wakes up next to him several times a night sometimes, because he has the little wee-wee adventures, as many a <laughs> man of a certain age does, and he'd wake up and it must have been like, being a newborn, I mean, the, the horror of dementia, going, where am I, who's this, where do I go, where's the toilet, oh, how do I walk? Mm. Like, it's, it's hard to know because he can't explain to you what's happening to him. And when he tried to, that also was heartbreaking because he'd just be, oh, I'm a little bit jumbled. And, and the moments of self-awareness were, were the most heartbreaking. There was, uh, there was one which was straight out of a horror film. So he's in Broomfield Hospital, having been given a few days to live. And after a week or so, because he, he said very few words, and most of them were to me, which again would probably break my mum's heart, going, why aren't you talking to, to your partner? But I went away for a couple of weeks to do gigs, because I, I was running out of money. Uh, <laughs> and also my mum and my sister were sick of my jokes. Because I was at the, the, the bedside just trying to add a bit of levity, and they're going, oh, for God's sake, go and do some gigs. Yeah. But I came back, and he said, hello, matey. And he'd not spoken for a, a good few weeks. And we all looked at each other, amazed. And then the one that, that was out of a horror film, is I said, I'm so sorry, Dad. Because he, he would mouth words, and a sort of rasping noise would come out of his throat, but he couldn't form words. Mm. 
And I said, Dad, this is really frustrating. I know you think you're telling me things, but you can't speak. And he just snapped into focus and went, I can speak. And I'm like, oh, my God. So straight away, um, are you in any pain? No. Great. Do you want any, anything? No. And then he sort of drifted off again. So, and then the, the other thing, which if you've seen the show, you'll know that this is hair-raising stuff, his mum played him a YouTube clip of his favourite comedian. And again, he just snapped into focus and went, oh, Billy Connolly, and then back into his reverie. So those were the, th- the few things that he said, and each one kind of breaks your heart a bit, because you go, oh, that silence, and yet in, in his head, I realised this is a podcast and I can't just point, in his head, <laughs> there was you know, loads going on. Yeah. And to not have access to that mental landscape, frustrating for, for us, obviously very frustrating for him. And for your mum, must be incredibly difficult, losing the person she's shared her life with. He was a very capable man and uh, you know they ran a successful business. Like I say, he was a bit of a daredevil. He loved adrenaline sports. So he was a motorcyclist, scuba diver, briefly a golfer, very talented artist. Is golf an extreme sport? Uh, it, is when I, it is when I play. Yeah, clear my, clear my diary. I'm going to be there for days. Yeah. <laughs> the people who are caring for someone often don't look after themselves absolutely and and um you know my mum has touch wood very few health issues but they were kind of ignored and and you know everyone's mental health is kind of put to one side as well it's like you know i've got problems but i'm not dad or i'm not my husband and and when we didn't put him in the ground he was cremated and and the turnout was absolutely staggeringly good he was a very popular man. But when, when that is over, you sort of take a minute and you go, oh, we're all, we're all not good. Mm. <laughs> and I, you know, I deferred this hip surgery. I had a, a relationship fail when we were doing, for want of a better word, death watch. Supporting your mum and your, your dad, what was the thing that you found most surprising about being a carer? It is just that you need to be present and to give your time because towards the end, I mean, when, when Dad was, was at home, then there was lots to be done, mostly keeping an eye on him because he became, towards the end, a danger to himself. Yeah. And it's like following him down the stairs, almost shuffling backwards in case he has that trip or he has that fall because he started to have quite a few little knocks, little falls. And by, by, by the end of his life, his, his skin was paper thin, so a cut would be catastrophic and would probably involve hospitalisation. What was the surprising thing? I mean, it was surprising that we got out of the house. I mean, the Costco trip, what a military operation it was to get this man dressed. And mum always dressed him incredibly uh, smartly. Um, and she refused uh, residential care for a long time until it was too late and it was enforced upon uh, dad because he, he could no longer do anything but there was one professional daycare center and they banned him for being disruptive wow. and that was surprising and caused a lot of anger mm. like these are professional carers if they, if they can't look after dad where, whereas my mum with zero training yeah, does it for yeah. seven and three six and three quarter days every week how is your mum doing now she lacks confidence which is something she always had in abundance so to see the sadness like there's a sadness hanging over her like a cloud 
at times I go, come on, it's, you've got to move on. But at the same time, that's a massive ask. And as uh, as the child, you know, I feel sometimes very very selfish and guilty. Like I just want to, you know, continue my 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 career and go on tour and 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 do these overseas gigs. But when I do the overseas gigs, it means I don't get back one day a week to Essex just to spend time with my mum. I oscillate between, oh, I'm doing a good job as a son, and then other times I go, I'm a terrible son, I don't spend enough time with my family, and I wasn't present, you know, when my dad was at his time of need. But it's it's balancing, I suppose, your your your, your duty to the, to the family, but also the life that you've made for yourself. How much adjustment has there been? Well, for me, I realised how little time I'd spent with my family um, up until the diagnosis and when he needed care. So I would uh, just swan around the world, as would mum and dad, because they they were retired and they would go on holidays. Mm. And so I didn't really, you know, have them at the front of my mind. I didn't think about them too much. So it made me... It made me very familiar with the A13, is what it did. <laughs> and the drive to Essex would take me between an hour and a half and three and a half hours. And I would start to resent my family. Like, oh, my sister's only a 40-minute drive away. It's twice, three times as hard for me. thought it would bring me closer together with my sister. But in a way, we would never see each other. Because if I knew my sister was at home looking after my mum and my dad... I go, well, I don't need to go that day. I'll go another day. Mm. So having all four of us together became quite a rare thing because mm. we take it in turns. And, and generally my day would be a Tuesday or a Wednesday because that's the day off for comedians usually. And then the weekends, you know, my sister might be able to help. But then she, she's got a husband who has a job that you know, she wants to have her weekends with her husband. So, there, there, you know, there is a knock-on effect. And I think... You know, one of the biggest problems for a lot of carers is that isolation, and they go through very much. Yeah, and and also, you know, my experience was was that the instinct is to isolate, and you have to fight it. Mm. One of the the things we we ask our guests is to tell a a story or a moment where you a memory of your dad. I, two stories. One which is just that moment of just a happy memory. Uh-huh. Um, and the other story, one of those moments where you have to laugh because it's so ridiculous, the situation. Oh, goodness me, that's put me on the spot. I think the happy memories, this is really interesting. Before the dementia, my dad was not a demonstrative or um, tactile man. Uh, <laughs> once he was quite far gone, he couldn't really refuse hugs. So as a family, we kind of got to give him the hugs that we didn't maybe when, when we were younger. And, uh, yeah, that was, I don't know if that's even fair. That, like, you know, oh, I'm going <laughs> to hug you whether you like it or not. And he, he, he was defenceless. Yeah. And he was also like, very, I think, sweet-natured. And we were very lucky that the, the dementia very rarely expressed itself as anger, frustration, as a lot of people with dementia, they get really frustrated. And a, and a moment that you look back on and just go, geez, that was that was something. Well, as in the horrific moments. Well, one of the one moment where I again I, I felt an, an awful human being. Um, the last holiday, we, my mother and father and I, uh, and my sister for a week. But at this point, it was just the three of us. And I'd selfishly, in hindsight, gone for a bike ride, 
because I wanted to be on my own. I wanted to go and have a beer down at the beach. And I was kind of halfway through the bike ride. And the, the holiday resort was on a quay, like a long, thin strip of land. So I was cycling back past where the, uh, where the, the, the holiday resort was. And I thought, I'll just check in before I you know, continue on my journey and, and go to the pub. I'll just check in because I've been on the bike for a good hour. And um, as I'm walking up the stairs to the, to the apartment, I notice that there's blood all over the stucco wall. I was like, oh, I wonder what's happened here. And my dad had decided, you know, in a moment, you had to be so vigilant towards the end. And in a moment where my mum just took her eye off the ball for a minute, he decided to take himself for a walk. And he sort of fell up some stairs. And he cut his head, he cut his arm, his elbow... It was horrifying to see this poor, defenceless little man covered in blood. And my mum was there like, oh, it just, it won't stop. And again, kitchen roll everywhere. And he kept taking it off and he didn't know what was going on. He was very, he was in a lot of pain. He was very confused. And we had to rush him to the, to the local hospital in Sarasota, which in itself, you know, you don't want to take someone to a hospital in America unless you have very deep pockets. <laughs> And I don't think the insurance has been settled to this day, but that was that was a moment that that will always stay with me because that was you know quite a quite a thing to take in, mm. and that I wasn't there, and you know both myself and my mum like if we'd been there one of us would have been supervising him mm. and we could have caught him because the amount of times um, going out for meals where I've actually physically caught my dad falling down the stairs it's like fuck if I hadn't been there. This would have been catastrophic, and my brother-in-law was the same because we'd take it in turns to, you know, take him to the gents if we're in a mm. sort of public situation. But then at home, it would always be me, my mum, or my sister, whoever, whoever was 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 at hand to to do the toilet run. I think the I say run shuffle <laughs> <laughs> the the guilt that you so often feel by you constantly feel like you're not doing enough, especially because it's your loved one. No, I, I actually wasn't as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think my, my mum would often feel guilt. And I go, mum, there's nothing more you can do. You've been by this man's side for 55 years. You raised his children. You pro- propped up the business. You, you did all the donkey work at the business. And then towards the end, you were constantly there. And you would even feel a bit bad when you had a couple of hours off mm. to check your emails and put the washing on. So there's nothing more my mum could have done. And, and, you know, I wanted to maybe say this publicly on your, on your <laughs> forum. There's nothing more you could have done, mum. Is it that? Is it you, would, you did enough? Mum, you did everything you could. And, uh, yeah. And, and I think, sorry I wasn't there more, but I, I... I did some selfish things, I think, in this process. And the next step, I hope, is to make a minor amends because we're going to go on a holiday together <laughs> uh, next month. I've got a few days off and I think we're going to try and get mum's confidence back. Well, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us today. Is there anything you... Have you got any shows coming up where people can come and see your stuff? Yeah, and I, and I hasten to add, I won't be talking about dementia or suicide. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be telling some funny jokes. So this week, I'm, uh, I think, at the Barbican in York on Friday... Do you know what? Why not look at my website, guys? <laughs> Just realised it'd be a lot easier. www.gordonsouthern.com. Gordon as in gin, southern as in comfort. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much, and um, I'm looking forward to come and seeing some more of your stuff. Excellent. I shall see you there. (laughs) James, do you think it's funny that a lot of the stories we ask people about often involve blood as as a comic sing? I well, I, uh, blood or poo—that seems to be the theme yeah. <laughs> that, that, that goes on around people. And it, it's interesting, actually, that um, you can tell Gordon is a comedian because you know he's got some some nice little lines with a good punchline in there. And you wonder sometimes whether that kind of creates a bit of a mask and and actually unlocks for him talking about a subject that he wouldn't normally feel comfortable talking about if it was just in a straight conversation. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the thought of going on stage and talking about something like that, it, I mean, it would never happen in a million years. But I wonder if you're right, it gives you almost a license to delve in and depict it because you have, you know, you have stage time. That's what you're, that's what you're up there for. It's very true. And it was striking, actually, the way he was talking about care as being a real team effort from his family. And that, you know, his mum was doing a great job, but he, he also saw that every member of the family was chipping in, in a lot of ways, as almost like secondary carers supporting his mum in, in that role. Yeah, I mean, and the slightly um, dark sniper metaphor, but I, I think it's right, you know, it does, it drags all people in. And I think, you know, I think where he was very lucky is that the family came together. I know there are other examples where people don't, always have those family units around them. And I think, you know, I think when, when you do have a family unit or, you know, family in the loosest sense of the word, it could be friends, it could be the neighbors. It just takes such a burden off, off that one person. I think it's um, so important to have that, that unit around them. And he, he used the phrase um, of being a cheerleader rather than a carer. And I, mm. I can absolutely, you know, that, that is such a powerful uh, sense that um, somebody's got your back and they're, they're somebody you can bounce off and you can come back to and uh, you can get the emotional support even if sometimes practical support for logistical reasons isn't available. Yeah, and I think I think there's also something in the first part of that word, cheer. There are times when you just need to go to somebody to be like, you know, to laugh about it, to pick your spirits up, to, you know, they're, those, they're the tough days and, and you do need someone who you can, you know, probably not always have pom-poms, but can definitely try to, um, <laughs> to kind of lift your spirits. I'm sure Gordon so. would love a pom-pom uh, to, to be way Well, I mean, when he came in, he was hobbling. He'd had, he just had a hip replacement. So I don't think he was going to be doing any splits anytime soon, but um, we <laughs> wish you well, Gordon. Hopefully the uh, recovery is going well. It was also interesting how, um, because of the time spent and the development of the condition, I thought it was quite cute the way Gordon was, uh, in the end, able to hug his dad in a way that he hadn't before. Oh, terrible. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't think we could promote that, James. Uh, I think we have to always promote um, consent in all things, um, even if it is consent of a father to give a hug. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's, I think that was a, when he was telling me that, I had a massive smile on my face. It's something that's, you know, and you could see he really meant it as well when you, when you were there. And I'm not sure if it kind of came across in the, in the, in the, in the recording, but he, he had so much love for his, his dad. It was, it was, it was so obvious. And actually I think what he really found as well is that the same love for his mum and how, how much the caring really took out of her, um, particularly after it stopped and having to try to find her confidence again. I, I found that actually really difficult to, to listen to because it was, you know, it's just so sad when you hear somebody who was such a character suddenly be so drained. 
and that kind of post-care time, I think, is is something we don't really talk very much about. And I think it, you know, when you've been caring for someone full time for so long, and then suddenly that stops, you know, your loved one um, passed away. Is that what we say? Passed away, James? What's our official? Um... You know, I I normally I normally go with died. So just straight out. You know, yeah, it passed away feels like it's more of a euphemism, and you know, it's not always easy to deal with. But the truth is that someone has died, right? Yeah, no, and I suppose that's something you know culturally we don't talk about death very much. And that's something that, you know, is a, yeah. probably a big part of why people don't want to talk about being carers is because you have to you have to consider that your loved one is likely to, to die in the future, which is, you know, that's difficult to deal with. I think the other thing with the, the hip replacement was the fact that he delayed it. You know, he, he, he knew his family weren't at a time when, you know, he could take some time out. And actually, it's amazing what people do to support their loved ones. You know, hip replacements is a, it's a serious operation. And to then put your own health and well-being as secondary, I think, just shows how much he cared, but also you know, how, how much of a big role it can be. And that's, that's not the first time we've heard of that. I know Allegra, back in Series 1 from the Camden Carer Centre, was uh, talking about how often people put off medical uh, mm. conditions. And I guess it, it, it also plays back to... Um, Gordon's role as a cheerleader. So sometimes you need a someone to come from a loving position to say, "Look, mum, dad, brother, sister, whoever you are, you're making a bad choice for yourself. You you need to um, you need to go and get this sorted. Uh, let me help and and sort out whatever needs to be done from the caring perspective." Mm. But then so much of that plays into carer's guilt. And I know Gordon mentioned some of the kind of thinking going between thinking you're being a good son and being your a terrible son. And I think actually often it feels like you're being selfish by looking after your own mm. health and well-being um, and doing stuff for you but actually it's not selfishness you need to make sure you have that resilience so that you can continue supporting your loved ones it's a kind of vicious circle that you know you fall the wrong side of and it and it always and it goes badly it's the old thing about putting your oxygen your own oxygen mask on first on an airplane yeah exactly 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 that well, Gordon, thanks so much for uh, sharing your story there. Really good to hear. And um, Cairo, how can people see Gordon's work if they would like to? So, uh, like he said in the uh, in the interview, please check us out his his website. He um, he plays a lot all over the world. He's actually coming to Dubai, so I think I'm going to meet up with him in Dubai very soon. Well, hey. Um, but yeah, check out his website, GordonSouthern.com. Sweet. Um, guys, thanks for listening to this episode. As ever, we're on Facebook as Who Cares Wins. Uh, do please come and share your story. Uh, and we're also on Twitter, WCWPcast. Um, it'd be great to hear from you. Thanks, everyone. Speak soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs>